This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by Haymarket Books. One Haymarket title you might enjoy is Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism and the Rise of Racist Nationalism by Harsha Walia. Walia's book demonstrates how borders divide the international working class, mapping the lucrative connections between state violence, capitalism and right-wing nationalism around the world. You can find Border and Rule at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Soon before he launched the invasion of Iraq, George W. Bush insisted that his government had no issue with Muslims. This became a familiar theme in the rhetoric of US politicians after the 9-11 attacks. Our nation is waging a war on a radical network of terrorists, not on a religion and not on a civilization. As we wage this war to defend our principles, we must live up to those principles ourselves. And one of the deepest commitments of America is tolerance. No one should be treated unkindly because of the color of their skin or the content of their creed. No one should be unfairly judged by appearance or ethnic background or religious faith. Over the next two decades, the experience of fighting wars in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan converted the platitudes of Bush into the naked bigotry of Donald Trump. I think Islam hates us. There's something... There's something there that there's a tremendous hatred there. There's a tremendous hatred. We have to get to the bottom of it. There is an unbelievable hatred of us. In in Islam itself? Uh, You're going to have to figure that out, okay? You'll get another Pulitzer, right? But you're going to have to figure that out. But there is a tremendous hatred. And we have to be very vigilant. We have to be very careful. And we can't allow people coming into this country who have this hatred of the United States. I guess the question is... And of people that are not Muslim. I guess the the question is, is there a war between the West and radical Islam? Or is there a war between the West and Islam itself? It's radical, but it's very hard to define. It's very hard to to separate because you don't know who's who. Our guest today is Deepa Kumar. She's a professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University and the author of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. It's a book that explores the relationship between imperial militarism abroad and Islamophobic bigotry on the home front. The second expanded edition of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire was published by Verso last year. This is the second part of a two-part interview. You can find the first part on the website for Jacobin Radio. As the United States moved into the space that was vacated by European colonial countries like Britain and France, in the Middle East, how did its leaders and policymakers perceive the cultures of Muslim majority states? And how did those perceptions change over time, both during and after the Cold War? Right. So the US had very little knowledge of the region, actually, and so drew quite heavily from the uh, Europeans. And various Orientalist scholars who were well-established in uh, Europe 
actually, and who were part of developing policy in Europe, would see the winds of change shift, right? They would see that uh, the U.S. was now the main power in the post-World War II period. And so many of them would move to the United States and take up these really plum academic uh, positions. And so that's one stream of thought, if you will, that would influence policymakers at this point in time in the Cold War, in the post-World War II era. That's another framework as well that the U.S. employs in relation to the Middle East, but also uh, Latin America and other parts of the world, which is modernization theory. Think of Daniel Lerner's book, Passing of Traditional Society, Modernizing the Middle East, which is very influential in policy circles. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the impetus for modernization theory to be elevated at the expense of Orientalism as a theory was that the U.S. was very interested in positioning itself as different from the old colonial powers, right? This is the period where you see, you know, massive national liberation movements spreading across the globe from India to Algeria. And the U.S. is very keen to differentiate itself from colonial powers like France and Britain and to present itself as this beacon of democracy on the global stage, Uh, In fact, it's not an empire at all, right? This is the logic of American exceptionalism. And rhetorically, the U.S. does actually push back against the old empires in some instances. So, for instance, if you think about when Nasser in Egypt nationalizes the Suez Canal, France, Britain, and Israel launch a war, and the U.S. gets them to back down. Now, this was not any sort of principle support for national liberation movements, but it was about gently pushing the old empires out of the way so that the U.S. could consolidate itself. The Suez Canal, storm center of controversy for weeks, now becomes a cause of war in a lightning sequence of diplomatic and military moves. This American newsreel reported on the Suez crisis of 1956 and the response of President Eisenhower. A naval concentration in the eastern Mediterranean strengthens the military buildup, even as Israel, in a lightning attack, thrusts deep into Egypt to the vicinity of the canal. France and Britain issue a 12-hour ultimatum that all fighting must cease. Within hours of its expiration, Britain's warplanes are winging their way to Egypt, and its bombers attack five key cities, including Cairo. Following a Security Council veto by Britain and France of a United States motion for a ceasefire, President Eisenhower, after consultation with Secretary of State Dulles, makes a firm declaration of United States policy. The United States was not consulted in any way about any phase of these actions, nor were we informed of them in advance. In the circumstances I have described, there will be no United States involvement in these present hostilities. I therefore have no plan to call the Congress in special session. Of course, we shall continue to keep in contact with congressional leaders of both parties. It is our hope and intent that this matter will be brought before the United Nations General Assembly. There, with no veto operating, the opinion of the world can be brought to bear in our quest for a just end to this tormenting problem. In the past, the United Nations has proved able to find a way to end bloodshed. 
we believe it can and that it will do so again. The whole question is brought before an emergency session of the General Assembly where it faces the bar of world opinion. Now you ask how they viewed the culture of Muslim majority countries and it really varied, right? It depended on what the geostrategic and geopolitical aims of the U.S. was uh, at different moments. So at first, the U.S. tries to cultivate the leaders of nationalist movements, people like Nasser in Egypt and Mossadegh in Iran, similarly cultivate allies in Pakistan and elsewhere. And of course, I can't, I'm not going to speak to all Muslim majority countries, right? Indonesia is the largest Muslim majority country. India is the home to more Muslims than any Arab nation and so on. But I'm just going to focus on the Middle East, North Africa and South Asia, that is Pakistan, Afghanistan. Now, given how this period, as I said earlier, there was a dominance of secular nationalist movements and the emergence of decolonization struggles, when the U.S. couldn't co-opt these leaders, they actually adopt an Islam strategy, if you will. They try to cultivate Islamists to serve as a bulwark against Arab, Iranian, and Pakistani nationalism. This was part of the Eisenhower Doctrine, the Islam strategy, if you will, in the Eisenhower Doctrine. So uh, to concretize this, when Mossadegh was overthrown in a CIA-backed coup, it was the, with the help of Muslim religious leaders, such as Ayatollah Khomeini's mentor, for instance. And CIA backing and actual funding for these forces helps to strengthen the mullahs in such a way that it paves the way for the rise of Khomeini in 1979, after the U.S.-backed Shah is overthrown in a popular revolution. Attention is focused once again on the Middle East, where events in Iran have taken a dramatic double twist. Forced to flee his palace in Tehran, the Shah and his queen arrive in Rome after an alleged attempt by the Imperial Guard to arrest Dr. Mossadegh and a refusal by the Shah to dissolve Parliament at Mossadegh's request. Pathé News depicted the coup against Mossadegh in Iran as a popular revolution. And then the people themselves took a hand. Three hundred killed and hundreds wounded is a conservative estimate. The rioters freed those taken prisoner earlier and stormed the house of Mossadegh. Foreign Minister Fatimi gets through. First reports that he was torn to pieces had not been confirmed. Meanwhile, the mob flocked the streets demanding the return of the Shah. The newsreel commentator couldn't help thinking about the oil refinery at Abadan. The thoughts of Britain instinctively turned to Abadan, that monument to British enterprise and engineering skill. Forced to abandon what we had created in the wilderness, is it too much to hope that we shall see once more the tankers of Britain at Abadan? Maybe sanity will yet prevail, and Iran and Britain go forward in harmony. So that's one example. Another is Egypt. The U.S. tries to cultivate the Muslim Brotherhood, one of the oldest and formative uh, Islamic Islamist organizations, if you will. And even though members of the Muslim Brotherhood have you know, carried out acts of political violence, the very definition of terrorism, they invite leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood to the U.S., to, you know, help it to realize its aims in the Middle East. And the biggest linchpin in all of this is Saudi Arabia. Part of the Eisenhower strategy 
um, as one you know person in the administration put it, is they wanted to create in the ruler of Saudi Arabia a kind of Islamic pope, right? Someone who could act as a pole of attraction away from the secular nationalists um, and to actually Islamize politics in the region, which Saudi Arabia did actually under Faisal in the 1960s and 70s. But inevitably, of course, this came back to bite the United States. The CIA has a term called blowback. And, you know, that is uh, what happened. So in Afghanistan, the U.S. backs the Mujahideen. They are seen as heroes, you know, in the fact that they are resisting Soviet invasion of the country. Ronald Reagan refers to the Mujahideen as akin to our founding fathers They are our brothers. And one of these brothers is Osama bin Laden, who goes on to form Al-Qaeda and becomes enemy number one. Coincidentally, the day after Afghanistan Day, this country plans to launch the third Columbia space shuttle. Ronald Reagan even dedicated the launch of a space shuttle in 1982 to the struggle against the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan. So too does the struggle of the Afghan people represent man's highest aspirations for freedom. The fact that freedom is the strongest force in the world is daily demonstrated by the people of Afghan. Accordingly, I am dedicating on behalf of the American people the March 22nd launch of the Columbia to the people of Afghanistan. So it's, you know, it's back and forth. It's who is useful to advance U.S. imperial administration is a good Muslim and who is not is a bad Muslim, right? And in the 80s, you actually had it both ways. So whereas the Afghans were heroes, Iranians, particularly Khomeini, are villains, right? So you had a film like Not Without My Daughter, which is about such a flat and one-dimensional portrayal of Iranian society that it's just, you know, it's it's outright propaganda. There's very little that is um, subtle about this. Um, Sally Fields plays uh, a role in this. It's based on a memoir by Betty Mohammadi. We're not going back. We're staying here. I want us to live in Iran. What, are you crazy? We're Americans. Your daughter's an American. At any rate, Iran is presented as anti-modern, backward, misogynistic, and so forth. And this is a theme that gets picked up even in later films like Argo. All Iranians are bad, except for an embassy worker who's trying to help the Americans and the Canadians escape when they're taken hostage by uh, Iranian students. And Argo was made by Ben Affleck, who has been cultivated by the CIA. Actions of Iran have shocked the civilized world. Or you look at a film like Zero Dark Thirty, which is set in Pakistan. All Pakistanis are suspicious and bad, except for one translator who helps the Americans get to Osama bin Laden's compound, right? So this is, you know, how U.S. policy and thinking and ideology has progressed. Where Muslims are useful, they're good. Where they are not useful and they resist U.S. imperialism, they are bad. Critics are raving about a new movie, Zero Dark Thirty. The following clip comes from a PBS documentary about the role of the CIA in shaping Zero Dark Thirty. Inside the theater, a raw portrayal of the brutal interrogations the CIA said were crucial to the success of the raid. This is a dog collar. 
message was you need to torture people in order to get the information that will lead you to your main target. When you lie to me, I hurt you. Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden? Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden, huh? The movie left the American people with the impression that torture worked and that without it, we would never have been able to trace the trail back to Abbottabad and to find Bin Laden. Give me the information I need. You and I can talk about some of the guys in the training camp. I walked out of Zero Dark Thirty. Candidly. California Senator Dianne Feinstein was the powerful chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, we were having a showing, and I got into it about 15, 20 minutes and left. I couldn't handle it because it's so false. What impacted the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent so-called war on terror have on the development of Islamophobia? Yeah, so 9-11 really served to elevate Islamophobia or anti-Muslim racism significantly. That is both as policy as well as ideology. And in terms of policy, it was the basis really upon which the national security state was expanded and bolstered. And so even though there was racial profiling and surveillance and so on that goes all the way back to the late 60s and so forth, it was expanded quite dramatically. I have a chapter called Terrorizing Muslims, which goes into all the ways in which Muslims were not just produced as terrorist threats, as racialized terrorist threats, but were subsequently also subjected to terror, right, in the form of intrusive surveillance, indefinite detention, uh, torture, and so forth. So uh, immediately after 9-11, you know, 1,200 Muslims from the Middle East and South Asia were immediately rounded up. They were summarily arrested. They were interviewed by the FBI, local law enforcement agencies, and so on. And you see a series of these sorts of uh, policies. And from the tens of thousands of people uh, that were interviewed, not one terrorism conviction was the result. So that gives you a sense of how an entire group are seen as racialized security threats, even though they haven't actually done anything. And so these, these programs start getting rolled out, including surveillance programs, detention and deportation, all premised on the logic that Muslims are a suspect population who are guilty until proven uh, innocent. So the infamous NYPD surveillance program in the tri-state area is one such example. By the way, it was shut down after the uh, Associated Press did this huge expose, but it continues in very subtle ways as activists on the ground and others and lawyers have documented. But what was this program? Basically, the NYPD sent uh, informants, agents provocateurs into mosques. They were known as mosque crawlers. They were sent into uh, schools. In fact, at Rutgers, the university that I teach at, there was an NYPD safe house just off our New Brunswick campus, and they were allegedly spying on student groups on my campus and faculty. And the reason we got to know that there was the safe house is because the landlord who was renting this uh, apartment 
thought there was some suspicious activity going on and he reported that to the local police. And so, you know, that's how that made it uh, into the news. But that's been what has happened is that the instruments of coercion and intimidation have been expanded and strengthened. Al Jazeera reported on the NYPD spying program in 2012. When news of the NYPD surveillance first became public, New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and Police Chief Ray Kelly made no apologies. During a press conference, Bloomberg said, and I quote, the police department goes where there are allegations. They look to see whether those allegations are true. That's what you'd expect them to do. That's what you'd want them to do. Now it's clear those allegations were unfounded. The NYPD's assistant chief has admitted in court that none of its monitoring led to a single terrorism lead or investigation. Millions of dollars of taxpayers' money uh, have been spent on this. Uh, They have not been able to find any leads. Uh, Again, profiling has been identified as a very ineffective strategy. We tried to speak to worshippers here about religious profiling, but they didn't want to talk. Fahed says they're afraid of retaliation by the NYPD. I'll give another example, which is the FBI's entrapment program. The FBI routinely sends agent provocateurs into particularly poor and working class uh, communities, African-American Muslim communities as well. I think it's very important that when we talk of Islamophobia, that we not focus only on immigrants and citizens from the Middle East and North Africa and South Asia, but we recognize that black Muslims actually were a majority of Muslims in the United States up until the 1970s. And the very first programs of surveillance and racial profiling were actually directed at uh, black Muslims in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, um, and so forth. But at any rate, going back to the post 9-11 period, what you have is that uh, the FBI is sending shock provocateurs into communities in order to get people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't, right? So these four African-American men in Newburgh were enticed with money. One of them had a brother who was diagnosed with a fatal illness, and he needed the money for his care. And so he took the money. And when some of them, you know, uh, expressed hesitation about carrying out uh, an attack on a synagogue in the Bronx, The agent provocateur berated them and said, you have to do it and so on, provided them with the so-called bomb. And as they're getting ready to go to carry out this attack, you know, the NYPD shows up, the media are all there and yay, yet another terror plot foiled. And in fact, it's stunning how many terror plots, so-called terror plots are actually the product of uh, the FBI's entrapment program. And I'll I'll cite another report in terms of how the national security state, including the DOJ, uh, operates. It's it's called Inventing Terrorists, the Lawfare of Preemptive Prosecution. Just to say a little bit about preemptive prosecution. Preemptive prosecution is the domestic equivalent of preemptive war. It's the idea that we, we, meaning the security state, needs to target and ferret out People before they actually do anything, right? It's somewhat like uh, Minority Report, the Steven Spielberg film, where uh, these precogs apparently can tell who will commit crimes, and you know they are nabbed before they do anything. And that's actually what's been done. It's not a film; it's the reality of what's happened to Muslims. So, in this report, lawyers who wrote this report 
look at all the uh, Department of Justice's terrorism and terrorism-related convictions from 2001 to 2010, and they found that a majority, 72.4%, were cases of preemptive persecution where the defendant's ideology and not his or her actual criminal activity that was the basis of conviction. In the other cases, people were involved in sort of minor, non-terror-related activities, but the facts were manipulated and inflated so that they were presented as terrorists. So that's what's been going on, is that a racialized and essentialized understanding of Muslims has you know, informed these security practices. And make no mistake, these counterterrorism practices developed to target Muslims have now been expanded to other dissident groups as well. So the NYPD spied not only on Muslims, but liberal groups as well. The FBI has used Azhan provocateurs to entrap Occupy Wall Street activists. Native Americans protesting the Keystone Pipeline project were targeted using uh, counterterrorism tactics and so forth. So to answer your question in brief, what 9-11 did is it elevated anti-Muslim racism It put front and center the image of the Muslim terrorist threat on which an expanded national security apparatus was developed, which then got used against all threats to the status quo, all threats to empire, all threats to capitalism. How did the rhetoric of U.S. government officials shift during the passage from Bush to Obama, from Obama to Trump, and most recently from Trump to Biden? And beneath the rhetoric, what was really happening in terms of policy? So the policy really has been fairly consistent with one president borrowing from another to another. There are tactics that would change, but the strategy of strengthening U.S. imperialism is one that has been consistent throughout uh, this period. And so 9-11 really provided a golden opportunity, if you will, for uh, the political elite to consolidate and strengthen U.S. imperialism. You might remember that uh, the neocons were in power at that time with the Bush administration. And one year before 9-11, the Project for a New American Century had released a report on how to assert U.S. domination around the world, but in the Middle East in particular, And they basically said, well, we can't realize this policy unless there is something like a new Pearl Harbor. And that's what, of course, 9-11 was. It presented this opportunity. And uh, as Condoleezza Rice said, you know, this needs to be uh, pounced upon and taken advantage of um, before the moment uh, goes away. Rhetorically, a bunch of ideologues were brought into the Bush White House People like Bernard Lewis, who coined the term clash of civilizations, Farid Zakaria and others, all of whom developed this war on terror brand. And it was really, you know, the clash of civilizations is really neo-Orientalism, right? So if you think about the Afghan war, other than getting revenge and going after Osama bin Laden, it was supposedly to rescue women. Never mind that that actually didn't happen. In November 2001, the First Lady Laura Bush recorded the following radio broadcast about the status of women in Afghanistan. Afghan women know through hard experience what the rest of the world is discovering, the brutal oppression of women 
is a central goal of the terrorist. Long before the current war began, the Taliban and its terrorist allies were making the lives of children and women in Afghanistan miserable. Seventy percent of the Afghan people are malnourished. One in every four children won't live past the age of five because health care is not available. Women have been denied access to doctors when they're sick. Life under the Taliban is so hard and repressive, even small displays of joy are outlawed. Children aren't allowed to fly kites. Their mothers face beatings for laughing out loud. Women cannot work outside the home or even leave their homes by themselves. Like her husband, Laura Bush denied that Islam as such was the target of her condemnation. Muslims around the world have condemned the brutal degradation of women and children by the Taliban regime. The poverty, poor health and illiteracy that the terrorists and the Taliban have imposed on women in Afghanistan do not conform with the treatment of women in most of the Islamic world, where women make important contributions in their societies. Fighting brutality against women and children is not the expression of a specific culture. It's the acceptance of our common humanity, a commitment shared by people of goodwill on every continent. The fight against terrorism is also a fight for the rights and dignity of women. So that's how the process of the uh, of orchestrating the war on terror began. But one key shift was that the doctrine of preemptive war, which originally was proposed in the 1990s and was roundly rejected by the Bush senior and later Clinton administration, was now accepted. And this is the idea that the U.S. can act unilaterally around the world to take out threats on the global stage before they actually do anything, before they actually become real forces that can threaten U.S. global hegemony. Now, Bush Sr., of course, uh, I'm sorry, Bush uh, Jr., who was the president at the time, wanted to go to Iraq first, right? He we know from the accounts of that time is he said, find a way to pin this on Saddam Hussein. But that didn't happen. So first uh, the U.S. went to Afghanistan and then next with the so-called coalition of the willing to Iraq. But by the time we come to the second term of the war uh, of Bush's second term, the war on terror is actually not going well. In fact, U.S. soldiers are not greeted as liberators And the image of empire was really taking a beating on the global stage. And this is where Obama comes in, the sophisticated orator who could serve to rehabilitate empire. And so right away, he goes off to Egypt and makes a speech about, you know, the contributions of Muslim civilizations to human history. He distances himself from the clash of civilizations framework He goes back to the policy of multilateralism. But in terms of policy, he expands surveillance dramatically. Counterterrorism policy is ratcheted up. The homegrown terrorist is something that is focused on. CVE, countering violent extremism, is an Obama policy. And abroad, of course, you see the dramatic increase in the use of drones and the number of regions in which drone warfare is conducted. You have Terror Tuesdays, right? Remember that when Obama himself is involved in picking the number of people who will be killed in drone strikes 
And, you know, this includes U.S. citizens as well, people like Anwar al-Awlaki. So without so much as a trial, people are just getting killed in these extrajudicial uh, killing methods. Al-Qaeda and ISIL and groups like it are desperate for legitimacy. In his public rhetoric, Obama followed the same approach as George W. Bush by describing groups like Al-Qaeda as a perversion of Islam. They try to portray themselves as religious leaders, holy warriors in defense of Islam. That's why ISIL presumes to declare itself the Islamic State. And they propagate the notion that America, and the West generally, is at war with Islam. That's how they recruit. That's how they try to radicalize young people. We must never accept the premise that they put forward, because it is a lie. Nor should we grant these terrorists the religious legitimacy that they seek. They are not religious leaders, they're terrorists. And we are not at war with Islam. We are at war with people who have perverted Islam. So Obama really expands and consolidates the national security state. And then comes Trump, who replaces the liberal imperialism of the Obama era with the America first policy. Now, there are people who think he was an isolationist, but that's not at all the case. He actually continues many of the policies um, of the Obama era, including the pivot to Asia, which Obama wanted to do but couldn't quite do, and that uh, Trump is able to actually focus on. In fact, his policy is known as illiberal hegemony. And in a nutshell, illiberal hegemony is a policy of aggressive unilateralism, the abandonment of multinational organizations and treaties, as well as economic hacks through which the U.S. dominates the world. It was actually neoconservatism on steroids combined with Trump's transactional approach to deal-making, right? But what it was, rhetorically at least, and to some extent in terms of policy, it was a break with the bipartisan strategy of liberal or benevolent hegemony, if you will, right? This illiberal hegemony. In fact, what this was, this liberal hegemony, is that both parties were committed to the U.S. state superintending global capitalism behind the veneer of benevolence, right, behind a sort of liberal veneer. And the goal, of course, was to integrate the world states into a so-called rule-based neoliberal order of free trade globalization and to prevent the rise of any peer competitor or any rival alliance of states. Now, in place of this, Trump implemented a toxic combination of economic nationalism, unilateral imperialism, and a transactional relationship with all the states in the world system. But he basically continued the approach to Israel and Saudi Arabia. In fact, he aligned himself with the worst elements in both those uh, countries. He escalated the drone program and he continued Obama's policy in Afghanistan, although he broke with it in the case of Iran. In 2015, Trump claimed to be deeply concerned about the spectacle of violence in the Middle East. 
By the way, most Muslims, I know many, are great people, just so you put it do on you, the record. So, let's say, do you think Muslims are a problem? Well, I think a certain segment are certainly a problem, and unless you want to be so politically correct, where well, you want me to say, oh, absolutely not. I mean, you have ISIS, you have the migration, you have all of this stuff, you have... You know, a lot of people think you're going to end up with World War III over the Middle East. I've heard that for 25 years. Mm -hmm. There's something going on when you see beheadings. I mean, beheadings, we haven't seen that since medieval times, beheadings. You see Dunkins, they call them Dunkins, drownings, where they put people in a cage, dump them in the ocean. There's something going on. Trump's aversion to beheadings suddenly evaporated when it came to Saudi Arabia. In 2019, Two months after the Saudi regime carried out a mass execution of 37 people, Trump met with the kingdom's de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Salman. Saudi Arabia, a friend of mine, a man who has really done things in the last five years in terms of opening up Saudi Arabia, and I think especially what you've done for women. I'm seeing what's happening. It's like a revolution in a very positive way, and I want to just uh, thank you on behalf of a lot of people, and I want to congratulate you. Uh, you've done really a spectacular job. We've had some meetings on trade and economic development and on the military, of course. And the meetings have been uh, really terrific. As you know, Saudi Arabia is a big purchaser of American products and especially of America military equipment. We make the best in the world by far. And we appreciate that they do. Uh, they create at least a million jobs are created by the purchases made by Saudi Arabia. So uh, we're very happy to be with you. Great honor. Thank you all very much for being here. Thank you. Now, with the election of Biden, you have the Obama II era, which is again a return to uh, liberal hegemony, but not much in terms of substantial change in terms of policy. So even though the war on terror is supposedly officially over, right, this was the promise that Trump made is he's going to end the forever wars. He didn't actually do it. Biden actually pulled out of Afghanistan, it really is not the end of the war on terror at all. That is to say, um, apart from the recent execution and extrajudicial killing of uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the infrastructure of empire that has been created, the bases, the places from which drones can be flown in order to take out all threats to U.S. imperialism, all of that still exists and is still very much there. What is the relationship between the right-wing Islamophobia network that you identify in your book and the political mainstream and media mainstream in the US today? Right. So there are three forms of anti-Muslim racism, I argue. Uh, liberal, conservative, by which I mean the neocon clash of civilizations kind of Islamophobia. And finally, the right-wing or reactionary or conservative Islamophobia. So to come to, I've already spoken, obviously, about the liberals and the neocons. So to come to the right-wing Islamophobia network, it's basically a very well-funded network of groups and organizations who all work together in order to push back against what they see as a threat to Western values in Western society. In fact, this is a global counter-jihad movement, as it's called. And the U.S. is the key intellectual and tactical hub of this global Islamophobia networks. So 
My argument about these forces and their relationship to the political mainstream in the U.S. is that there are many folks who've written very well about this Islamophobia network, their sources of funding and so on, but they like to see them as somehow being anomalies, as people who are not part of the system. The system itself is robust, it's good, and these folks are just some extreme elements who, if you get rid of them, that's the end of Islamophobia. That's not true. In fact, I call them new McCarthyites. That is to say, they are not outsiders, but they are people who are very much part of the security establishment, of think tanks, of media organizations, and so on. And they function in the way that McCarthy functioned, right? That is, Senator McCarthy was very useful during the Cold War, as a way to create the red enemy, as a way to, you know, police dissent domestically. And he became the foil that actually pushed the envelope, that pushed politics uh, to the right. And that's the role that the new McCarthyites also play, is that their theories are so extreme that it makes liberal Islamophobes appear to be normal, right? So some of these conspiracy theories are that Muslims in this country, for instance, are out to take over and infiltrate every institution and organization. They want to impose Sharia law, and they have to be stopped in every avenue and every arena. And um, there are some people who are quite extreme in this network, They argue that at end times, right, that is the end of times, Muslims are going to fight alongside Satan, right? And these kind of people actually are invited to give talks at counterterrorism conferences. They're paid to do this kind of work. So far from being anomalies who just put out their propaganda, they are very much part of empire, right? They are generals. They are trainers of police forces. Some of their videos, actually, just ridiculous, extreme conspiracy theories were shown to the NYPD, to new recruits on a continuous loop. And so they're not anomalies. They're part of the system. And of course, Trump really legitimated and elevated these conspiracy theorists, right? And Trump himself was part of putting out various kinds of conspiracy theories like birtherism, for instance. But during uh, the lead up to his uh, election campaign in 2016, he argued that, you know, the U.S. should close the door to Syrian immigrants escaping the horrific violence of the civil war there, saying that they're out to come and infiltrate American society. Actually, the way he put it is that, you know, allowing Syrian immigrants in would make a joke out of the Trojan horse, right? And then, of course, he introduces the Muslim ban, never mind that the countries that he is trying to ban people to come from, the Cato Institute, a libertarian institute, showed that, you know, not one person from any of these seven countries had had carried out a terrorist attack in the U.S. But anyway... Uh, so that's the far right. And for them, all Muslims are bad. There are no good Muslims, but they're not alone. They are enabled by liberals. There are mainstream liberal thinkers like Ayan Hirsi Ali, for instance, who's part of the neoconservative camp, and Christopher Hitchens, who used to write for The Nation, 
who put in much more sophisticated uh, language the same kind of ideology that I spoke about at the start of this uh, interview. And unfortunately, they are accepted and they are believed. And so the New York Times, you know, would run this huge profile on Ayan Hirsi Ali, calling her a feminist, when in fact, her brand of so-called feminism is really imperial feminism, right? It's about getting empires to go out and supposedly rescue uh, Muslim women, when in fact, we know from the uh, research that human rights organizations have done, that while there were some improvements uh, in city centers in Afghanistan, for instance, the vast majority of women in the, in the rural areas in the countryside actually saw their situation get worse. So I would say then that overt and covert racism are really on a spectrum. The far right, liberals, conservatives are all part of the same spectrum. They use different language, but they all serve to bolster and enable empire. And they are mutually reinforcing of one another. Many thanks to Deepa Kumar for giving us that summary of the arguments that she makes in her book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. If you haven't heard it already, you can listen to the first part of her interview on Jacobin Radio. 